traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. If you say William Shatner and the Twilight Zone, then someone else will usually say that there's something on the wing. But there is his maybe less iconic, but possibly unfairly overlooked episode from season two that we'll be looking at tonight. Now don't get me wrong, I think this episode has its fans, but it definitely lives in the shadow of the other Richard Matheson penned episode that William Shatner starred in, which is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. We'll get to that one eventually, but today we'll give this one its time in the sun, and this episode is Nick of Time. I mentioned way back in the first episode how I like Americana, you know, the small town classic American look, and I think this episode is a great example of that from the get-go. It has classic cars, an American cafe with stools at the counter, great stuff, and we meet our couple, Don and Pat Carter, who are very much in love, very intoxicated with each other, and they've stopped over to get their car fixed before they go on their way to New York. They drop it off to a mechanic who is played by Stafford Rep, who Bat fans will remember as Chief O'Hara in the Adam West Batman series. Luckily for him, this time round, he's not saddled with trying to pull off an Irish accent. Don and Pat are very much still in the honeymoon period of their relationship, with a bright future ahead of them. Don speaks about a promotion that he may be in line for, and they have a very carefree way about them to the point where, even when they get into that cafe, they can't help but put some music on the jukebox and dance together. But when they sit down, they see a little novelty item on the table, but there's also a very familiar figure in the cafe. Well, what have we got here? The Mystic Seer. The what? Well, let's try it, shall we? Have you got a penny, honey? I think so. What'll we ask it? I don't know. Here. I got it. What? Does anything exciting ever happen around here? It is quite possible. The hand belongs to Mr. Don S. Carter, male member of a honeymoon team en route across the Ohio countryside to New York City. In one moment, they will be subjected to a gift most humans never receive in a lifetime. For one penny, they'll be able to look into the future. The time is now. The place is a little diner in Ridgeview, Ohio. And what this young couple doesn't realize is that this town happens to lie on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 18th of November 1960, written by Richard Matheson and directed by Richard L. Bear. We've met Richard L. Bear with two very strong Twilight Zone episodes so far, and they are Third from the Sun and The Purple Testament, so I won't recap what I've already said about him, but... 
If you look down his filmography, there's one thing that stands out more than the others, and that's a series of 63 shorts that he made back in the 50s that all begin with the title So You Want or So You Think. So there's lots of titles like So You Want to Be a Detective, So You Want to Give Up Smoking, So You Want to Be in Pictures, and so on. And these all feature the misadventures of a character called Joe McDokes, played by George O'Hanlon, who would later become the voice of George Jetson on the Jetsons TV show. So they're amusing little 10 minute shorts that theatre owners would play before movies and so on. Now, they are comedic and comedy is one thing that doesn't always stand the test of time, but I watched a couple of these, they're on YouTube, and they do raise a smile at times. There are quite a few throwaway style gags like the Zucker Brothers would do to great effect an airplane and the naked gun. You know, gags that the character wouldn't necessarily acknowledge, but they're just happening to the side of the screen or in the background or something like that. Other times the comedy is very broad and a little cringeworthy, but they are of their time and, you know, he made 60 plus of these things. So back to Nick of Time. There isn't a great deal of trivia about this episode, so a little detour here and there isn't necessarily a bad thing. So that familiar figure in the cafe was, of course, Rod Serling. And I think in a past episode I misremembered the opening of Nick of Time, in that I think I said that Rod Serling was sitting in the cafe reading a newspaper. What we actually get is a fast screen pan and Rod Serling sitting at a table smoking a cigarette. So it's still good, it's still putting him in the scene, which I like. But that fast screen pan, I think, might be there to disguise the fact that maybe he wasn't actually there at the time. And we see it quite a lot in the Twilight Zone, these, this fast zoom, which is why I think his entry in something like Eye of the Beholder is much better because he actually is very tangibly there. Whereas with something like this, I get the feeling that he might not have been in the same place or he's actually been filmed at a different time, you know? So, minor details maybe, just a preference, but it's still good, it's still putting Rod Sailing in that cafe with the two characters. And in his opening narration, Rod Sailing speaks of a town that lies on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. So in the past we've had a hotel that's on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone, and probably a few more things, and we'll see many more to come, and I have spoke about that before, that maybe I'm looking too deeply into what was just his routine way of opening the show, but to me it sort of suggests the Twilight Zone bleeding into our reality at times and causing strange events, which is something that I quite like. Oh, good, hmm? Great, he must have siphoned it out of a swamp. What are you doing? Getting some pennies. What are you going to ask it now? What else? Am I going to be promoted for Pete's sake? Hey, look. What? It has been decided in your favor. Ah, you see, your worries are over. So Don and Pat sit at their table in the cafe, and Don put some pennies in the Mystic Seer machine. Now the Mystic Seer 
is a little novelty item. It's a napkin holder that you put a penny in and it gives you a slip of paper with a very generic fortune on it. You have to ask it a yes or no question and it will answer you in, in some fashion. And it has a little devil head on the top as well to give it some character. At this point, Don's interaction with the mystic seer is still very casual and he calls his company to find out about a promotion that he's been waiting for and he finds out that he's got it. So it's all very innocent at this point, but because the mystic seer predicted that he'd get the promotion, Don gives it another try. Is it really going to be four hours before we get out of here? You may never know. What does that mean? Who knows? He does. Mm-hmm. But it'll cost you another penny. I'm an office manager now. What do you mean we may never know? No, that's not a yes or no question. You mean something will keep us from knowing? Something will happen to us? If you move soon. What does that mean? Well, he's a mystic. What do you expect? Ah, I can see I'm going to have to be the frugal one in our family. Just one more. You mean if we're not supposed to move, we're supposed to stay here? Just one question per penny, please. That makes a good deal of sense. How long... No, uh... Should we stay here until 2.30? Try again. Should we stay in here and, until three o'clock? There's no question about it. So we have this scene where Don keeps feeding pennies into the mystic seer and getting more and more troubled by the answers. What I like about it is this gradual escalation from being quite innocently amused by the messages on the tickets to more and more obsessed with them. And the Mystic Seer has this mischievous look on its face as the camera focuses on it. Now this little devil head was actually added by the art department. It wasn't something that Richard Matheson put in his original script. I think it's a good choice to add some personality to the machine rather than it just being this blank little napkin holder. But it's Shatner who sells it. You know, he does have a reputation these days as a bit of a ham because at some point William Shatner started to play up to his own image. But here he is as William Shatner the actor before we know anything about him, before he grew into that just doing a great acting job. So let's pause for a moment to talk about our leading man, William Shatner. Well, it's William Shatner. You know, there doesn't really seem to be much point in telling you what he's done because we all know what he's done. But it is nice to look back at Shatner before the great fame, before he was constantly poking fun at himself. And he was just a young actor who is doing a great job, I think. You know, he's young, handsome, charismatic, and he does have a great energy about him. This is six years before he took on the role that would change his life, which of course is 
Captain James Kirk in Star Trek. And because of the time that the Twilight Zone was made, he's not the only Star Trek star to make an appearance. In the future, we will get George Takei, James Doohan, and the recently departed but fondly remembered Leonard Nimoy. They'd all make an appearance. So from the messages they're getting from the Mystic Seer machine, it seems to be telling them that they need to stay in the cafe. Pat wants to go, but Don seems to be making excuses to stay because he now has this idea in his head that something bad will happen if they go out. I'll forget. I suppose I'm just being stupid. No, you're not. You're just... Don't say it. Superstitious. It's like you married an alcoholic, isn't it? Only instead of bottles in the chandelier, it's rabbit's feet and four-leaf clovers in my pockets, in the car. And, and you're all mine. What are you doing? What? Will you keep looking around as if... Do I? You are worried. You're worried about that... Oh, Don, I, I, I wonder when you act like this. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to upset you. I know you're not. It doesn't change the facts, though. What facts? Six straight answers. Oh, Tell Don, me. please. Oh, stop treating me like a retarded child or something. I didn't make those answers up. Now, that line that Don says did cause offence to at least one viewer. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. tells of a letter from a lady called... Mrs. Robert Cassander of Hillside, Illinois, and she wrote a letter to Rod Sailing, and it said, Yesterday, as my husband and I watched your show, Nick of Time, with William Shatner and Patricia Breslin, the actor, in answer to the actress, said, Stop treating me like a retarded child. My husband and I were stunned at this malicious-sounding statement. If only you knew how that statement hurt. Couldn't you have used a different term? I have a feeling that we're not alone in feeling this way. We have a retarded darling that God sent us. And Rod Sailing sent the reply, I did not write the script to Nick of Time, but I know the writer personally and professionally, and I also know that he is a man of stature and goodwill, who would never knowingly have caused as much personal hurt to you as he obviously did, with a thoughtless throwaway line which to him meant nothing, but which to you must have been heartrending. Please accept my apologies in this, and my assurance that it will never happen again on my show, or any programme in which I have a part. Too often, we go along blithely unaware of the myriad meanings of language amongst people, where to most a certain line is general, unspecific, and quite innocuous, to others it has a very special meaning, and can be both damaging and offensive. I'll be most careful of this in the future, and I thank you so very much for calling it to my attention. So that's an interesting detail from a time when I suppose we, we consider a bit less sophisticated than now and maybe most people it did go over their heads but she's pointed that out and Rod Sailing responded I think in a very classy way so good for her for pointing it out and good on Rod Sailing for responding in that way. Now that conversation between Pat and Don seems to suggest that Don has past form for being quite superstitious and obsessive about things. 
and they introduced that quite well, not too heavy-handed. They showed a four-leaf clover on his keyring earlier. So, the episode setting up that question in our minds, does the mystic seer have some sort of power? Or is it just Don's obsessive, superstitious nature? But then as they cross the street, they're almost hit by a car, and the time on the clock is three o'clock. Now, earlier on, the seer suggested that they wanted to stay in the cafe until three o'clock, but they left early. So this just cements in Don's mind that the seer is predicting the future. So they go back to the cafe. Will we reach New York all right now? Your chances are good. Very precise. Honey, what do you expect? A slip should come out and say, Hiya, Donzie and Patsy, so how's by you? Hear me. I never said these slips were made for us personally. I only said. I that... heard. Don, don't you realize it? You could get the same kind of answers from any one of these machines in here. Try and see. The same kind, maybe, but not the same answers. Don is in deep now, and Pat is becoming scared of his behavior. This machine is predicting our future. Do you think I could just walk away from it? I'm not talking about that machine anymore. I'm talking about you. Are you just going to sit here and let that, that... that thing run your life? Run my life? Run my life? Isn't that exactly what you're letting it do? Don, it made you call the office before. It made you stay here instead of leave. It made you afraid to walk down the street. And now it's telling you where you're going to live. It's as if every superstitious feeling you ever had is wrapped up in that one machine. It doesn't matter whether it can foretell the future. What matters is whether you believe more in, in luck and in fortune than you do in yourself. You can decide your own life. You have a mind, a wonderful mind. Don't destroy trying to justify that cheap penny fortune machine to yourself. Now it's this speech, nicely delivered by Patricia Breslin, that snaps Don out of his fascination with the mystic seer. They leave, they take hold of their own destinies, and head off into the unknown to write their own future. But as they exit, an older, more worried-looking couple enter. And they go to the machine and, quite obviously, they've become slaves to it. Now Richard Matheson recalls in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic how he got the idea for the episode. And he said, On nick of time, my wife and I were in a coffee shop in the San Fernando Valley. And there was this little fortune-telling machine that answered yes or no. And so I just thought, oh that's an interesting idea. The derivation is something you read. With me, it's mostly something I see in the movies. If it's a lousy movie, I don't leave, which I should. But my mind drifts, and something that I see may just trigger an alternative idea. Now, I have read that in the Twilight Zone magazine, Richard Matheson regretted that Patricia Breslin, who played Pat, didn't come back to play William Shatner's wife in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I think that would have been good too. There's not really much to say about her as an actress. Nothing really sticks out to me on her resume. And I don't think her performance is anything amazing, but it's decent. And I think she does share a really great chemistry 
with William Shatner. Like I said before, this is a Richard Matheson episode, and like Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, it stars William Shatner. So how good would it have been to have Nightmare as a kind of sequel to this? Shatner's character has different names in both stories, but they do share the same obsessive tendencies, and it would have been good to revisit that character down the line in a second brush with the Twilight Zone, where that sort of flaw in his personality that we see in Nick of Time has took hold of him more, and has really kind of got a grip on him. I think it would have been a good, a good thing, but unfortunately it didn't happen that way. I think the most obvious comparison you can make with real life that this episode has is Shatner's using this machine as a sort of guide, a guide to his future. He can't make a decision without consulting the, the mystic seer. And I guess a real life equivalent is the use of mediums and psychics. In the past, I have been quite interested in that, not as a particular believer, but an interest in the phenomenon, if you like. I did have a friend who was very into such things, and I went along to a couple of uh, like stage readings just out of interest, you know? And what struck me is, and I don't mean this as offensive to anyone who believes in these things or uses these things, each to their own, you know? But there was a certain section of the audience that came across to me as very needy. This seemed to be a crutch for them, going to these things, and there was a desperation about them. You know, a desperation that they would be picked and find out something or get a reading, that sort of thing. And I found it quite troubling, to be honest. And and I think this is kind of what they're getting back here, that, that lack of having hold of your own destiny and choosing your own path, needing some sort of crutch to guide you along the way. Now, having a bit of advice is no bad thing, but when it becomes the only way you can function, then it definitely is. In the early 2000s Twilight Zone series, there is an episode called The Path. I have read that it's loosely based on Nick of Time, and if that's the case, I can see how it would be it features a female lead who meets a psychic in a cafe played by the rapper method man he gives her readings on various things like a new job a job interview and so on and she be she becomes addicted you know she's going back there all the time and gets advice and so on if it is a loose remake of nick of time it's definitely an inferior episode i think like a lot of the 2000s Twilight Zones, you can watch it, you know, if you want to pass 20 minutes, it's perfectly watchable. Little piece of television, I don't think it's particularly good. It's uh, very disposable, it feels very disposable to me, and it features an ending, which I won't ruin in case you want to check it out. It kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth, because it really paints the the lead character is very repellent and that happens in the twilight zone sometimes sometimes that's the point they they have to learn a lesson and the twilight zone teaches them that lesson or casts some punishment on them um but you know it's there for you to to watch if you want but like i say i don't think it holds a candle to nick of time 
Overall, I am very fond of Nick of Time. We keep comparing it to Nightmare at 20,000 feet, and I think that probably is the better episode, but this is... I think this is a good, solid little Twilight Zone, and I enjoy quite a lot. Again, we've, we've spoken in the past about the episode When the Sky Was Open that didn't feature anything tangible as a threat. It was all things that were suggested. But even in that episode, there was people disappearing and so on and that's what the characters were getting so freaked out about here there's even less than that we don't know whether the mystic seer has any sort of power we don't know whether it's just don being superstitious and taking these things too literally so again they're making this this unease this escalation out of absolutely nothing and i think shatner pulls it off brilliantly uh, pat breslin as his wife is a great support and in the end, Don is snapped out of it by Pat, and they leave. Then we get this other couple who come in, and they are obviously slaves to the Mystic Seer, so we have that comparison there. Now, I occasionally quote from a book called Rod Sailing and the Twilight Zone, the 50th Anniversary Tribute, and that's by Douglas Brody and Carol Sailing. And in it, Brody makes some observations about the episode. Some of them are quite interesting i don't always agree with his observations but you know a lot of people probably don't agree with mine so that's fine the first thing he sort of said one of the first things he says is shatner resembles sailing short darkly handsome conventional but with an edge more notable is the resemblance between patricia breslin and photographs of carol kramer sailing from the late 1940s the beautiful brunette with probing intelligence and firm moral stance suggests that this couple stands in for the sailings who did journey from Heartland, Ohio to Manhattan after Rod's early success. He also makes some comparisons with the episode The Fever because both of the male characters have an addiction in that uh, Franklin Gibbs was addicted to the slot machine. In this, Don is addicted to the Mystic Seer Brody kind of compares those two characters. He says, why does Don Carter deserve to be saved when Franklin Gibbs did not? Youth and attractiveness aside, Carter displays the warmth of a humanist. Before the problem begins, he and Pat hold hands, suggesting not only sensuousness, but a true affection for one another. He's also warm when speaking to others, including the diner's counterman. Gibbs, on the other hand, sealed his fate when, in response to Florence's request that he stop yelling because others were noticing, he shouted, to the devil with people. And he finishes by saying, No sooner have Don and Pat Carter left than another notably older couple enter. He feeds the machine pennies. She weeps as the Satan-headed fortune teller regurgitates cards that, in the man's mind, imply that they are its slaves. The actors are Dead Ringers for Everett Sloan and Vivi Janus in The Fever. By implication, the older generation accepts his fate and so remains a prisoner of it, while the new breed of partners in life exert free will and escape. For them, then, there is hope for the future. Interesting observations. I don't necessarily agree that they are Dead Ringers for the characters from The Fever, but I'll take on board Brody's kind of analysis of it. So it's a very traditional Twilight Zone message, well delivered I think, about not becoming 
a slave to outside influences and creating your own path, creating your own destiny. Is there any way out? Any way at all? Counterbalance in the little town of Ridgeview, Ohio. Two people permanently enslaved by the tyranny of fear and superstition. Facing the future with a kind of helpless dread. Two others facing the future with confidence. Having escaped one of the darker places of the Twilight Zone. Now let's hear from some listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast in Submitted for your approval. A listener called Chad has wrote me a couple of emails and he's just sharing some uh, memories of the Twilight Zone, which are kind of like, we've all got our own history with the show and he's going to share some memories with us. He says... When I was young, I had a glow-in-the-dark Twilight Zone poster on my door. I used to love watching the old episodes in syndication or on cable. I'm very happy to have recently rediscovered the show with the box sets, books and your podcast. As I get older, I realise there is a whole world behind the shows, behind the series. I find learning about Rod Serling really illuminating. Now I know why the original Planet of the Apes was my favourite, because he had a hand in the writing of it. Sailing struggles with the network, creative control of the show, and the struggles to put some of his stories dealing with issues like race, equality, and empathy on the air unmolested because of the threat to add dollars from the southern states in the US is a rich part of his personal narrative. Sailing wanted to change TV itself and broaden its ability to do something more than just create revenue for sponsors. These themes are addressed on the PBS bio they did on him, which is included in the recent box set, and on As I Knew Him by Anne Sailing, which I just listened to on the audiobook and recommend. They are also addressed on your podcast. I continue to get a lot out of your show, which is very well done. The 25-minute runtime is perfect. The lead-in music is excellent. And all the interview clips, quotes, and behind-the-scenes info woven in with plot descriptions makes it one of my favourite podcasts. I took some film courses in college and appreciate how you put in discussions of the director's choices of camera angle, set and production as part of the storytelling. It occurs to me that your podcast, in a way, does something that Sailing himself fought to do. The technology of podcasting allows a show like yours to provide quality content which, if we limited to commercial radio, would likely never see the light of day. I'm sure that Sailing would be proud. Keep up the excellent work, and thanks, Chad. I appreciate that very much, and it's interesting. It's interesting your thoughts and comments about podcasting in general, you know. I agree. I think what podcasting has done is give us a chance to listen to the kind of things we want to listen to that radio would just ignore, maybe because they don't think it would hit a... A big enough audience now. I've been lucky that the Twilight Zone podcast has a very big audience, bigger than uh, any other podcast I've ever done. So, you know, this show that's over 50 odd years old still gathers that interest, but would 
a radio station agree with that, I don't know, you know. But were it up to me and I had control of a radio station, then it's the kind of programming that I would put on it, you know, these examinations and so on, I find are are very interesting and it's the kind of thing I, I would do. So thanks for your thoughts, Chad. So thanks everyone for listening and if you want to send in some feedback then email tom at thetwilightzonenetwork.com Not much content in terms of trivia this episode because it just wasn't there even in uh, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. It's a very short kind of entry on Nick of Time and the episode that we'll be discussing next time is even shorter so we'll see how we get on with that. That episode is called Lateness of the Hour. And we'll be looking at that next time. Bye-bye.